Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and today we're joined by Lorraine Wilson. Lorraine will be reading to us from and talking about her book, The Way the Light Bends. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Anytime. So we're just going <laughs> to jump right in. Can you please tell us a bit about the book? So The Way the Light Bends is my second book, and it is a dark folkloric mystery that um, kind of it explores grief and it explores uh, what we become when we lose the person who anchors us and what we are willing to believe in when we are lost, I guess. So it is full of Scottish folklore and liminal spaces. And um, it follows two sisters who have lost their brother. And a year after his death, his twin sister, who's the younger sister, goes missing. And it follows her through her diary entries leading up to her disappearance and her older sister from her disappearance trying to find her. But they are effectively estranged, the two sisters. So it's it's very much about the different ways they both explore their own grief and a kind of um, an attempt on the older sister Freya's part to to trace a way back to this sister that she barely knows. Yeah, so it's it sounds sad and it apparently is because I, I seem to be making lots of my readers cry, but I think it's sort of hopeful and full of full of light as well, I think. I hope. And what a gift to be able to touch your readers and I mean if you can make us cry and make us feel and think and you know <laughs> reflect, then I think that's such a wonderful gift. Yeah, it sort of feels mean as a writer, doesn't it, to say, Oh, I'm gl- really glad I made you cry. But but also oh, no, I say it all the time. <laughs> You made me cry with yours. So, <laughs> oh well, thank you. And I love hearing that, though. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't feel like it makes me mean, but of course, I mean that that could be just me. <laughs> so thank you for telling me that. <laughs> could we have our first reading, please? We could, yeah. And I, I'm going to start right at the beginning with with the funeral. So I feel like I've given you some content warnings and saying that that the brother dies. So I'm going to start with the funeral to set the scene, I guess. This is from Tamsin, his twin's point of view, her diary. He wanted to be cremated. Rob wanted to be cremated and have his ashes thrown into the sea in the middle of a winter storm. But don't tell the folks, he'd said to me. They'll want it done all traditional, Tams, and I guess I won't be in any state to care by that point. So let them do what they want. You know, it really sucks talking like this. I was sitting alongside him, perilously balanced on his hospice bed. I'd felt his shrug against my own shoulder, his weariness with pretending. I could push your bike into the sea instead, I offered, half joking, in a storm if you really want, although if I get washed in too, I'll come and haunt you. Can you haunt a ghost? Rob asked, then added thoughtfully, yeah, do that, I like it. New age Viking. You want me to set fire to it as well? A laugh, although it barely counted as one. The cancer had eaten away at him by then until he was left with only this, a slow, syncopated breath. Yeah, do that, he paused, and I waited. Sometimes it was the pain, sometimes it was the drugs. I waited a lot these days. I don't... Sheepy, I wish you could come with me. The old nickname, the one only he ever used, hit me hard. Sooty, I thought, the choice between the fire or abandonment. I wish you could come with me. Do you really think I want to stay? I said quietly. I will come, Bobs. I'll come with you. More silence. Shadows on the ceiling and the fear in his eyes was the worst thing in the world. I know, 
he said slowly, but not yet, Tams. This time he waited for me, and I would have promised him anything just then, even this. Not yet, I agreed. Two promises, in place of goodbyes. He was right, of course. Our parents had the full thing, church service and burial in an old graveyard surrounded by stone walls and yew trees full of ghosts. There is something so very Rob in that he got to be right even after he was dead. I didn't listen to the vicar's words because Rob had not believed and so he'd not be listening now either. And in the graveyard, in the rain, I watched the flicker movements of blackbirds beneath the trees, a crow perched on a headstone eyeing us darkly. I cried and the clouds cried and I despised every single person standing around Rob's bland coffin simply because they were alive. Freya caught my eye and gestured for me to go and stand with them, her, Rufus, mum and dad. But we shared too much DNA just then and I couldn't do it. I couldn't move or look at their faces or the colours of their eyes. I had Evie instead. Her hand held mine like an anchor and Dab, Shona, Twitch and Kyle, my friends, surrounded me like the sea. Dad cried, his eyes red and unblinking his arm around our mother's shoulder as solid as stone, and Freya, Freya was something from a movie. New black dress, one hand on the arm of her handsome husband, her face like ivory, and the rain making her pale hair the colour of water. She hasn't shed a tear, not that I've seen, and it shouldn't make me furious, but it does. The rain made my vision strange, drugged, mutating all those familiar figures into fox heads and hawk eyes and a cat slow blinking, a snake hooded and poised, a wolf smiling. Rob is dead and everyone left alive is a monster. Wow, Lorraine. So what inspired The Way the Light Bends? So strangely, it started with the ruins of the cathedral in St Andrews which I don't know if you've ever been, it's a very old cathedral that is very, very ruined. And um, St Andrews is prone to the hard, sort of thick sea mist on the East Coast. And I've been in those cathedral ruins in a heart, and it's the most amazingly sort of interstitial space in the heart. And there's something about that combination of the archways and the heart that felt like such a liminal space. And it just, that, memory and that experience has always stuck in my mind and I've always wanted to write that into a story and it it got me thinking about sort of looking through those archways and, and how those kind of borderland spaces are always tied into folklore so deeply and why is that why are doorways so powerful and is it because we need to look somewhere and sometimes we need to look in the shadows for hope And sometimes we are so desperate that we're willing to step into the unknown to find hope. And so that was kind of the question that got me started. And I was thinking the thing that perhaps makes you that desperate, the most obvious emotion that makes you that desperate is grief, is the loss of somebody that's that important to you. And then kind of how does that affect people differently? And how does does that happen? What happens to a family, to siblings in particular, when the sort of central sibling is removed from the equation? So it all kind of grew from from there, from the cathedral in St Andrews, which which does make it into the book. That that scene is in the book. Uh, so, yeah. How beautiful! I love that place and that atmosphere 
inspired the question and led to a book and also the repetitions of ghost while you were reading and you really did a, such a wonderful job of bringing it to life and giving us that atmosphere and that sense of tension right there in the opening so oh, what a treat you. you're welcome <laughs> could we have another reading please we could. So I am whipping forward to further in the book, quite far through the book now. And I'm going to my the older sister, Freya. And this is a scene uh, that is about six months after Tamsin has disappeared. And she is looking for Tamsin. And she has come with her husband, Rufus, to a spring pool in the gardens that Tamsin worked in as a, as a gardener, as a horticulturalist. And Tamsin and this mysterious boyfriend of hers, Wells, and her best friend, Evie, were restoring this spring pool. And it features in a sort of ritual way in Tamsin's diary entries. So Freya has come there seeking answers. They made this last summer, she said, when they were standing beside the pool, breathing willow green air and watching a dragonfly skim predatory transects across the water, in and out of sunbeams like something half imagined. Tamsin Wells and Evie did. She didn't look down to the laughing face in the wall, but bent to run her hands through plants growing along the margin, trying to picture it as the muddy hollow in Tamsin's journal, trying to picture it by moonlight. Did you notice how Evie has forgotten about Wells, that it was his van, that he worked here with them? Rufus wandered to the weir wall, hands in his pockets, bending over it to examine the laughing stone face. The van could have been Tamsin's all along, he said. How would you know? And then quickly straightening up. Sorry, I didn't mean... Freya waved a hand, not quite meeting his eyes. It's okay, she lied. It's true, I wouldn't have known. Only Tamsin talks about it in her journal, so I know it was Wells and not hers. Don't you see it, that there's something odd about him? Then why don't you forget him too, he asked reasonably. Why don't I? bending down again and tentatively touching the antlers emerging from wild hair. Lovely green man, he murmured. Sunanos, Freya corrected. Look at the other side. He's not lovely. He's terrifying. Why would anyone put the god of the underworld here? It made the whole beautiful dell sinister, the green light and miasma and the water like a window into hell. Freya shivered. Her fingers suspended an inch. Two, above the surface of the pool, all the arguments for and against her next move, overlaying one another in her head. The dragonfly cut a path in front of her, its wings angling. You're full of surprises today, Rufus said. He sounded more curious than impressed, doubtful, as if unsure whether she was still herself. Wanting to reassure him, or wanting to laugh at him, wanting to hurl her old self at his feet and tell him he was welcome to her. Freya rose slowly to standing and slipped her sandals from her feet, began with unsteady fingers to untuck her top and lift it. What are you doing? He said. It was obvious. He must have been able to see her swimming costume by now, stark black and cerise in the watercolour light. Freya shed the top and half turned to drape it over a rock. Freya? He was standing beside her, frowning down into her face, a hand resting on her shoulder light enough not to be restraining, but laden, nevertheless. You cannot be serious. Why not? She was asking genuinely, wanting to know how far behind her logic his own lay, because this was the sensible next step, wasn't it? If all clues led here, then here was where you looked for the next one, or the last one. 
undoing the button of her skirt so it fell, pulling at her feet. Rufus threw up both hands in a quick, wide gesture. Because, because there's nothing here, you know there isn't. What do you think you're going to find? My sister. Saying it like that, she'd never felt more certain. She would find her sister. She would, here in the dark water, and somehow that did not mean what Rufus thought it did. Both hands on her shoulders this time, a little tighter, as if to stop her leaping from his grasp into the water like a fish. You won't, Freya. If she was, God, if she was in there, the police would have found her when they netted it. Freya, darling, you can't seriously think she's in there. Freya struggled to keep herself still. Not actually in there, she wanted to say. It's a doorway, Ruth. It's just a doorway. The next breadcrumb on the trail, the only way forward. The black face of the pool waited beside her, and Freya could almost feel the weeds within her grasp. Jesus, Frey, come and sit down a second. Let's talk. Dropping one hand away and slipping the other into the small of her back. Over his shoulder, Sununos was laughing at her. Laughing and laughing because he expected her to go with her husband. Good, sensible Freya would sit with her good, kind husband and she would push away all the truths in her head until they were so remote they looked like madness. And she'd never find Tamsin. Or she would, but far too late. Okay, she whispered, turning with her husband's touch her skin slipping like silk over her muscles, and then she was a fish, all length and sinew and a turning arc, then down, her husband shouting something and the water black as soot and all the colds of winter closing over her head. Lucky it's deep, she thought faintly, pushing further, but of course it was deep. She'd already swum in this water. It was just that this time she knew it. Wow. <laughs> so Lorraine, this is my last question that I get to ask. And I feel like there's a thousand more I want to ask. <laughs> but so how does your background as a conservation scientist and also your interest in conservation, how mm -hmm. does that influence your writing? It's at the sort of base level, it influences it simply in that I'm familiar with the settings I write. So I know the wildlife and I know the plants and I know the sort of the smells and the sounds that you get when you're out in the wilderness. So it's very easy for me to to write those scenes. So I kind of it's kind of cheating in that sense in that I'm coming to it with a lot of a lot of that sort of world building knowledge. In terms of the themes, this book, my first book was very much um, influenced by sort of climate change and my feelings around climate change. In this book, it is present, but it's. I'm using it more of as a device to sort of separate out my two sisters. So Freya's summer is very hot and dry. And that kind of goes along with her character of being sort of very controlled and very, um, yeah, it all being quite locked away and, and dry in terms of her emotions. Whereas Freya's summer is full of floods and storms and she's all out, sorry, Tamsin, the, the younger sister, and she's all over the place with her emotions and they're all very much in the open. So I kind of, I, I, it's important to me as a writer that I always do consider climate change because I don't think it's something that we can ignore really in, in contemporary fiction. But in this, I much more play with it as a, as a sort of device rather than as a, a soapbox theme, if you like. Yeah. So that was kind of, I guess that's it for, for this book, particularly a lot of tramping around Scotland and inspiring the setting and the birds and stuff. That's wonderful because it does seem like there's a lot of the senses. So we get to we get to imagine or visualize and you do get the sounds and 
I would imagine is also the, you know, the smells and the feeling, the atmosphere and all of that. And so it's really nice knowing that you did, you know, travel around to bring that to life on the page. Yeah, it, it is something I love in my writing. The setting is always massively important to me, partly because I think it such, has such potential just to add depth to the, like you were saying, like the sensory experience as a reader, but also because every setting comes with folklore, doesn't it? Wherever you are in the world. And that folklore is really important in shaping how your characters navigate their landscape, you know, and how your characters perhaps interpret or see reflections of their emotions in the landscape around them. So I really like that aspect as well, you know, sort of tying in the wilderness with the folklore is a really big love of mine in, in writing. So that's that bit's not very scientific of me, folklore, yeah. but I feel like they're totally intertwined. So, yeah. And I'm sure there's a science that studies folklore. So there you go. I'm sure there is, yeah. And I mean, there's sort of sociology, isn't there? It says all sorts of stuff about humans and about our our relationships with each other as well as with the world around us. So Exactly. Yeah. So could we have our final reading, please? Yes, we could. So we're returning to Tamsin, the younger sister now, and this is Christmas Day, the first Christmas after Rob's death. Evie appeared this afternoon, holding up her car keys in one hand and a bottle of gin in the other. Which one, she said, which is how I got here, sitting at the edge of the cliff, Donata behind me in the night already falling, my hand stiff with ice beneath my gloves. I wish I could talk to Freya, bring her here and tell her my promises, tell her about Sea Tamsin and Wells and how for a while I thought there was a way to live fragmented but unbroken. Today of all days, I wish we could talk, hang up all our twisted history on the rocks and sit down together, just us in our present skins, just two women whose hearts are no longer whole and who understand each other because the shapes of those missing pieces match. I wish we could be each other's sister the way we ought to be. I would take her hand in mine, touch my fingers to her fawn-freckled skin, and I would say, we always admired you so much. You are so strong and so clever, and you were always there watching to make sure we were not hurt, to keep us from getting lost. I would say, I am so proud of you of all that you've done, I would say, Freya, he loved you so much. But we lost ourselves, didn't we? Rob was always so very there. There was no need to see each other without him. There was only space to see our differences, our jealousies. Is it too late to patch together the space between us and darn up the threads? Would she still search for me if I were lost, or would she not, if she hasn't done so yet? The sea whispers beneath me, and it has joined with the sky into one vast arc of darkness with just these stubborn rocks to ground me. This is where I did not die. This is where wells kissed me, our skins slick with rain and the sea. If he came back now, I should turn my back on him. I should not grant him a second chance to abandon me. I should not grant myself a second chance to fail him. I think of him summoning moonlight with his smile, though, and I suspect I would place myself in his hands and give him all the hopes I could muster. I would set trust upon his shoulders and ask him to show me how to mend myself, to wait for me while I did so. And if he offers again the chance of knowing you are near, Bobs, the chance that this is not as complete as it feels, I would take that. If magic is real, then so can hope be. 
It is better than falsely benevolent gods who promise heaven whilst condoning your death. And don't give me those phony catechisms that excuse gods from their sins. Don't give me stolen ceremonies fueled on hijacked wonder and hijacked love. Don't tell me that today is about beginnings, when we all know it is about holding on to love so that we can survive the dark. I won't have that. But I will accept a world that hides secrets from me, a world where things might be concealed in all the frequencies of light that I am blind to, or in all the dimensions that my body cannot grasp. I read that the dance of honeybees lies within six-dimensional space. I read that light can be two things at once and also neither, that time can be bent like paper. Once every cell in my body was as cold as the sea, Evie drove us home again. She turned the heating up high, and when the road allowed it, she held my hand. As always, such wonderful prose and such such (laughs) wonderful tension that you build and give us these relationships in such a short time. So where can we buy, you're welcome, where can we buy The Way the Light Bends? It's out with a small indie press, so the best best place to buy it is to support them directly. So from Luna Press Publishing, um, her website is the best place, but it's also available at all the normal sort of retailers. So wherever suits you best, but indie press is for the win. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So thank you so much for being my guest, for reading to us and talking to us. I really appreciate your time and... I look forward to everyone reading the book. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This has been such fun.